You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Bible reading this morning is from Esther chapter 4, reading the whole of Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they may live. But as for me, I've been not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether this, whether who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Helen, and good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke, and it's great to be with you. How about we pray as we get into God's Word? Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that this remarkable story remains so vivid and real and uh, significant for us. We ask that you might work through your Spirit to help us respond to it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes in life, you come to a crossroads, a, a big decision, a key moment. And really, these decisions require courage and character. Will you say no to that temptation? Will you say yes to the opportunity or the responsibility that God has put in front of you? Will you step in to help another person, even if it costs you? Or perhaps will you expose some evil that is present and you see it? Or will you just let it slide? These are big decisions. And I think big decisions like this really define us. They reveal who we are, but they also shape who we're going to be. You see, they, they show who we have become, what, what kind of character has been forming behind the scenes over the time. And then it also marks out the path for the future. The way we decide, whatever we decide, will shape how we are going to live beyond that. We might move forward in conviction and clarity, or we might kind of slink back with a bit of shame and embarrassment. So what will we choose? Today in uh, Esther, chapter 4, we see Esther come to a crossroads. Uh, she is, of course, the queen of Persia, and uh, we've been watching her over this journey, and she comes today to this pivotal moment, a massive decision that will define her. Uh, she's living in comfort in the palace, but today she will be faced with the opportunity to save her people, to do something significant but also dangerous, and she'll have to choose this day between comfort and conviction, between the wealth and the comfort of the palace life or the danger of identifying with God's people. So what will she choose? Uh, for those who are wondering what's going on, the, to set the scene, uh, last week as chapter 3 ended, we saw that the Persian capital of Susa was thrown into confusion. That was the description. And if you remember what happened last week, you'll understand why. Uh, in verse 13 of chapter 3, we saw a decree go out from the king uh, of Persia, Ahasuerus, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. This had all come about uh, from a dispute that had arisen between uh, two of Ahasuerus' key uh, leaders, Haman and Mordecai. We met Haman for the first time last week. He's basically the prime minister, the second most powerful person in the empire of Persia. Uh, the king honoured Haman, Haman and uh, wanted everyone else to honour him as well, to bow down and pay him homage. But we saw last week that Mordecai refused to do that. We weren't exactly sure why he refused to do it, but I suggested that it probably had something to do with the family histories of these two guys. Uh, both Mordecai and Haman had royal lineage. Haman was a, a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Mordecai was the descendant of King Saul, the king of the Israelites. And so these two nations and these two kings had had conflict in the past. They'd fought each other. And so when Mordecai sees Haman, he doesn't just see another Persian. He sees someone who is an enemy of God's people and he refuses to kowtow, kowtow to him. It seems like a bold move, but it would have devastating consequences. Haman was filled with fury, we're told, when he saw that Mordecai was refusing to bow down to him. And so he determined to put him in his place. But we saw last week that he wasn't satisfied with just punishing Mordecai. He wanted to punish all of his people. Verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. 
This is what had inspired the king's edict. And so now we've seen this thing get into place where a genocide has been planned and a date has been set apart. So you can see why the city is in confusion. Suddenly, God's people are vulnerable. A death sentence lies over them. Young and old, women and children face death. And in chapter 4, we see the response of the Jews. And Mordecai sets the tone with this dramatic and passionate display of grief. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried with a loud and bitter cry. A sackcloth was a kind of very basic garment uh, woven from a very coarse fabric, the kind of material that you use in sacks, strangely enough. <laughs> and it, it was worn as a, an instinctive expression of grief. It's saying, I, I don't care about aesthetics at all. I just, I just want to express my grief here. And that's what Mordecai is trying to do. This is his instinctive response. And it inspires a similar response from the rest of the people as well. In verse 3, we're told that the Jews in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, joined with him in grieving in sackcloth and ashes as well. Now, there's something uh, almost mournfully pathetic about this in the sense that they just seem so powerless in their grief. All they can do is mourn like this. And yet it's also something admirable. There's an act of defiance here, really. See, this was a very public display of grief, which meant it was a very public demonstration of their Jewish identity. So up until this point, a lot of Jews may well have been living incognito. We know that Esther had hidden her identity. When she went into the palace, Mordecai said, don't reveal that you're Jewish. And so she'd been living secretly as a Jew. And we can imagine that actually lots of the people were probably living like this. And so you would think that when this decree goes out that all Jews will be killed, they would be even more cautious to protect their identity. But no, actually, instead, this is the moment where they come out of the shadows, where they declare who they are. So there's something very brave about this and impressive. And there's also a faith that they demonstrate as well. I've mentioned before that the book of Esther almost feels like a secular book. There's no mention of God explicitly and there's no mention of worship practices or anything like that. And yet there's always this subtle implicit tone throughout it. And I think we see that here. We're told that they fast and so we can assume that they were also praying because that's what the Jews would always do when they fasted. And so there is this moment here where they are seeking God and humbling themselves before him. But while this was no doubt an encouragement to Mordecai, he knew that there was one Jew who hadn't yet come out to mourn, the one Jew who potentially might be able to save the people. That person is Esther, of course. As queen, he assumes that she has some power, some influence. And so he goes to tell her what's been happening. And actually there's this little scene here which is, is quite revealing. He doesn't actually get to see the queen herself. There's this guy called Hathak who comes out and they talk to each other. And from what uh, Mordecai says, it, it's clear that Esther has no idea what is happening. She has to be informed completely. Uh, Mordecai even provides a, a written copy of the decree that's gone out. And this detail is really interesting because it shows that Esther is completely cocooned. She is off in the palace and she's safe there. No one knows that she's Jewish. And no one has to, surely. And she could keep herself at a distance from all of this. She could stay like this. And it's clear that that's what she wants. You see, uh, 
she replies to Mordecai and she makes a reply that, that reveals how difficult it would be for her to do anything. Verse 11, she says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. This is like the, the woman's day version of life in the palace. You know, it all looks fancy, but here's the gossip behind the scenes. She hasn't seen her husband for a month. And so actually there's trouble in their marriage. And she doesn't have the kind of influence that Mordecai might imagine. She can't just boldly walk in. In fact, if she just goes in, she might even be killed. She might be executed. And we know that Ahasuerus has already banished his previous queen. So he's got form. This guy would be willing to get rid of her if he doesn't want to see her. And so really what Esther is saying is, look, I don't know if I can do anything. Uh, it's too hard for me. This is too dangerous. But if she thought that this might deter Mordecai, she's mistaken. To him, these explanations are really nothing more than excuses. He needs her to intervene, and so he redoubles his efforts, sending another message. Uh, Esther is a book full of uh, important speeches, and this next one from verse 13 is one of the most important. I want, to, I want you to see how Mordecai frames this. He, he's begging her, pleading with her, almost demanding that she gets involved and so he gives her, first of all, a dose of reality. Verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's basically saying, yes, I know that no one knows that you're a Jew now, but surely that's going to change. You won't be able to hide your identity all this time. And in fact, if you stand aloof, then God will judge you. Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. See, really he's saying that Esther has a responsibility to intervene. She may fear the king, but she should fear God even more. She has a responsibility because her people are in mortal peril. She cannot just stand by. She must do something. Right? So he's really giving her a reality check here. He's not pulling his punches. But there's something else here that I want you to see too. Let's look at again what he says in verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. You see, in the midst of this uh, incredible crisis, Mordecai still has this faith, this belief, this hope that God will intervene, that hope uh, that something, rescue will come from somewhere, from God himself. You see, Mordecai understands the great storyline of the Old Testament. God had chosen the Jews to be his people, Deuteronomy 7. They are his treasured possession, chosen out of all of the nations on the earth. And he had bound himself to them through covenants, through promises, covenants that Mordecai believes God would never break. God had promised that he would achieve his purposes through the Jews and Mordecai believes that that is still the case. He'll never give up on his people. But there's something quite remarkable about this faith. Because if you looked at the situation, you could easily think that God had given up on his people. You see, when God gave his promises to his people, he also gave them warnings. Yes, he would bless them if they obeyed him and followed him. But if they didn't obey him, they would lie under his curse. And that's what's happened, hasn't it? 
I mean, the reason Mordecai is in Persia is that God's people have been punished. God gave them the land, but they lost the land because they repeatedly disobeyed him. And so it would be easy for Mordecai to think, well, well, maybe that was it. Maybe God's given up on us. Maybe we've gone too far, one step too far. And yet somehow he doesn't think that. Somehow he believes that God's promises still hold, that there's still hope, that there's a twist in the tale, that God hasn't finished the story of the Jews, of his people. And he even thinks that Esther might be a part of it. Look what he says. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He's throwing out to her the possibility that God might have raised her up for this very moment and that God's promises could be fulfilled through her. Now this brings us to one of the most fascinating and complex aspects and concepts in all of scripture and theology, the paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. See, the Bible makes it clear that God is sovereign over all things and that he is the great scriptwriter. You can imagine history as, as the script that God has written out. And he writes this script not just in a general sense, like there's a few dot points and we fill in the gaps, or he, he gives us a few options and we choose our own adventure within that. No, no, no. The Bible makes it clear that God is writing every word. As Derek Thomas says, nothing happens without God willing it to happen, willing it to happen before it happens, and willing it to happen in the way that it happens. And this means then that all of history is moving towards the fulfilment of God's purposes. Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I'm the one sovereign being. I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. He can see the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God is sovereign. And yet at the same time, humans are responsible. We are characters in this story that God has written, but the actions that we take, we are held responsible for. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for them, what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So God is sovereign and we are responsible. Now this raises some questions, doesn't it? Kind of from both sides. If we think of God as sovereign, then we wonder how we can have any personal agency in history. You know, how do I have free will? What's my place here? And we might question how God could hold us responsible. I mean, I'm just a character, aren't I? How can I answer for what I've done? But then when you think about things from the other side, you realise how we need a God who is sovereign. Imagine, for instance, that God had started this world and didn't know how it would end, just had a vague idea of what his purposes were and just kind of let it ride. I mean, how could we have confidence in him? In fact, how could we be sure of his promises if we didn't know he had the power or the determination to fulfil? R.C. Sproul says, if there is just one maverick molecule, just one maverick molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, then the practical implication for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made to his people will come to pass. So yes, it's complex, but somehow we have to hold these two things together, that 
God is sovereign and we are responsible. But I don't want us to just think about this in abstract philosophical terms. It's better to think about it practically and in real life. Uh, you've probably worked out by now that I'm a history nerd and one of the things I love about history is the drama of this interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. See, history turns on the actions of great figures, whether good or bad, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Churchill, Stalin, Osama bin Laden. They had a big role in shaping our world by their actions and they are responsible for those actions, right? And yet it's also clear that God is sovereign in these actions. And sometimes he just demands attention. And one of my favourite examples is Hitler on D-Day. So uh, the Allies land at the beach at Normandy and they have to get to Paris. It's going to be an incredibly hard thing to do. Narrow roads, hedgerows, uh, big shrubs everywhere and they have to get through broken towns and all this stuff and they face these massive German defences. But, you know, one of the reasons that they managed to make progress was because all of the German tanks were just lying idle behind the lines. And why were they lying idle? Well, it's because Hitler was asleep and everyone was too scared to wake him up. And so no, uh, no response was made. Now, when I look at that, I just feel like God is just jumping into the story. He's making it clear that he is writing this story, that he is working it out. And that's what he's doing all the time. He's constantly shaping the story in ways that are obvious. So it's not just the fate of nations that he's interested in. You can see this in your own life, those big moments that change your life. I remember I used to work in a bookstore in Ligon Street uh, and I was called into work one Saturday night. I was so annoyed. I didn't want to be there. I just wanted to be home doing nothing. I didn't feel like working. But as I'm sitting there, I see this lady walk in with a beautiful smile and I started talking to her and she one day became my wife. And <laughs> there's a, I'm kind of jumping from chapter 1 to chapter 12. But, <laughs> but it was just such an interesting little moment where God was clearly crafting the story. If I hadn't been at work, this wouldn't have happened. I might never have met her. So God is constantly at work. And yet I also had some responsibility, didn't I? I mean, I had to impress her. I had to talk to her, and I did. But God is constantly working through things, in the big things and even in the little things. Just this week, for instance, I was thinking about this sermon. I had a very busy week. I wasn't sure how I was going to write my sermon. I prayed on Tuesday morning, God, please help me, give me the clarity I need and the ideas. And I came back home, sat in my sermon writing chair. I've got a, a lazy boy that I write my sermons in. And, and uh, I did my work, right? And I could see that God had enabled me to do it. So there's those two things happening. I'm asking God to intervene and to give me the strength. And then I'm going ahead, trusting that he will do that. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. I heard an amazing example of this just half an hour ago. <laughs> Someone in our church, a family member, has been in a cult for a long time. And they just had this extraordinary experience of, of the sky lighting up and Jesus speaking to them. Extraordinary, right? And then they went to a family reunion with someone in our church and they said, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. I need to tell you about something that happened to me. And then they have this massive hour-long conversation about Jesus, about God, about Christianity. Now that is clearly God doing something, right? 
He is divinely sovereign. He is jumping into this guy's life. But there was also a responsibility for the person in our church, wasn't it? Imagine they just kind of walked away from that conversation. Ah, I'm not interested. No, I think they were interested. So God is using them to achieve his purposes. God works through our actions, good or bad, to achieve his purposes. But perhaps the very best example of this is the death of Jesus. See, when you look at it from a human perspective, this is the most evil act in human history. That humanity would so turn itself against God that they would seek to kill God himself. Right? That, that is the worst thing that humanity could ever do. And those who did it should be held responsible for it, right? And yet we know that from another perspective, this greatest evil was God achieving the greatest good. That actually Jesus' death was part of his plan. 800 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said that he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our iniquities. That actually it was part of God's plan that Jesus would die so that we could be forgiven. And Paul actually, uh, Peter actually says that it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we see these two things happening. Divine responsibility and human, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's will is achieved through our actions, good or bad. And all of that is the context, right, I think, for what Mordecai is doing here. He says to Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He's saying, I want you to imagine, to, to consider how God might be writing this story and how he might have placed you in it for this very moment to achieve his purposes. So what will Esther do? She's at this crossroads, isn't she? And the next move will define her. Will she go with and step into God's plan or will she walk away from it? And we saw back in week two that Esther actually has two names. Esther is her Persian name and she has a Jewish name, Hadassah. And those two names, she's the only one in the book who has two names and it kind of symbolises the kind of life that she has to live. She is a Jew living in a Gentile world. She is uh, this uh, queen, but she also has a responsibility to her people. And she's in this complex, conflicted situation. She has to choose which world she will live in. Will she stay comfortable with the Persians or will she stand up with her people and do what she's called to do? Or as Landon Dowden puts it simply, she has the choice between being fearful or faithful. You don't envy her position. I mean, you can just imagine how afraid she is, how she's tossing and turning, wishing that she didn't have to do this, wishing that Mordecai hadn't brought her into this, she was living in blissful ignorance before he came along. She's wishing that she didn't have this responsibility, that it could be someone else. It reminds me of a scene in Lord of the Rings. Uh, Frodo is despairing. Everything's falling apart. He's, the dwarves are doing stupid things and whatever. The task of carrying the ring to Mount Doom just feels impossible. And he cries out to Gandalf, I wish this didn't have to happen in my time. Hey, I wish there was someone else who could do this. Why is it me who has to do this? And Gandalf says, well, I, so do I. I wish the same. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have, decide, have to decide 
is what to do with the time that is given us. We can't decide the time in history that we're placed in. We can't decide the decisions that fall into our lap. We just have to decide how we will respond to them. Will we be faithful or fearful? Well, to her immense credit, Esther chooses to be faithful. She sees that her people face destruction and that she might be able to do something about it. And so she steps up, aligning herself with God's purposes. As Karen Job says, in this moment, Esther had to decide who she really was. She had, had to overcome herself in order to do what God had created her to do and positioned her to do. So she takes responsibility. But I also want you to notice that she takes responsibility fully trusting in God's sovereignty. See what she does. She swings into action, but the actions that she takes are all focused on God's intervention. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and then hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat and drink for three days, night or day. She, she's asking God, she's pleading that God will intervene. And when we fast, we do it so that we, we can set ourselves to focus on God's intervention. We're, we're seeking his blessing. That's what she's doing now. She's asking the people to do that. Now, normally when the Jews fasted, they would only fast from food and they'd still be able to hydrate during this time. She's going for an incredibly intense fast, three days and nights without food and water. By the end of this, they'll be close to death. But that's the reality. She wants them to realise that, that she is close to death and that they are close to death. If God doesn't come through here, they are all doomed. And she wants them all to feel this. But then there's this wonderful sense of faith in this as well. She's asking God to intervene. And that final line that she says, then I will go to the king. After this fast, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. So it's completely dangerous. And if I perish, I perish. What an extraordinary faith. She knows the risk that this step will be, but she resolves to do it. I said a couple of weeks ago that Esther is sometimes compared unfavourably to other great heroes of the faith in exile. Some people say that she should have resisted the circumstances that she was in. Of course, it would have been incredibly dangerous, but we know of other uh, Jews, other people from God's people who, who had done that. Think of Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego who, who stood up for their faith and risked death to do it. Well, I don't think there can be any doubt about Esther's character after this. In fact, her words remind me of something that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said. Now, as they faced the fiery furnace, they said, to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's just remarkable faith. There's, they're so bold. We believe that our God can rescue us, that he can deliver us from this mighty king, that he can deliver us from the fire itself. They have a bold faith. But it's also an incredibly humble faith. We know he can do this, but if not, we still trust him and we'll obey him. If we perish, we perish. And that's what we see here with Esther. She trusts that God can intervene. She wants God to intervene, but she will, sub she will submit either way. If I perish, I perish. 
we need a faith like this, don't we? In life, we're, we're always faced with moments of crisis, moments of decision, where ultimately we have to choose between being fearful or faithful, between obedience or disobedience. Sometimes it's tricky. We can see that we have an opportunity to, to be a part of God's work, but it might cost us. I don't know where I heard this, but it's always stuck with me. We declare the lordship of Christ in the general and it's tested in the specific. You know, we say, we declare that Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour and we try and live that out, but it's only really tested in the specifics, in, in the moments where it's, it's really hard, where it's going to cost us. These are the moments that really reveal who we are and shape who we are. And I want to say to you, if we choose the path of faithfulness, things will open up for us. You see that here with Esther. See, up until now, she's been very passive. She just kind of allowed things to happen. She was taken to the palace. She took part in the Persian bachelor. She was made queen. Like all of these things just happened to her and she went along with it. But now she's standing up and she is intervening. She's deciding what's going to happen. In fact, she's been listening to Mordecai all this time, but now she tells Mordecai what to do. She's got a certain conviction and courage. You know why? Because she has decided what she will do. She has decided that she will follow God no matter what. If I perish, I perish. Her life has opened up. And I've seen this play out in my own life and in the lives of people around me. It's amazing how often I'll meet with someone who's just on fire for God. They just have a wonderful faith, a really vivid story. And almost with every person, there is a moment in their life where they had to choose. They came to a crossroads where they had to choose between fear or faith. They chose the path of faith and their world opened up. So that's the promise for us. Yes, it's hard. We never want to face these decisions. and We may face them all the time. But where we choose to follow God, God will open things up. We have to step out in faith. See, David Firth says, we can recognise the working of God looking backwards. If I look back at my life, I can see him working all over the place. The hard thing is we have to trust him going forwards. We don't know how the story will go. So will we step in with faith? How do we, how do, we do that? Where do we find the power for that? Well, Landon Dowden says, we find, it, we find the power, the fuel for faithfulness by considering God's faithfulness to us, in particular in the person of Jesus. I said earlier a few weeks ago that throughout this series, I want us to, to see Jesus by looking at the characters in this story. Yeah? The, the, he's kind of a counterpart. We either compare him or contrast him. So a few weeks ago, we thought about King Ahasuerus. Just like Jesus, they had great power. Both of them have great power, but how they got that power, how they used that power was completely different. Today I want you to look at Esther and to compare her and contrast her to Jesus. In one sense, they're very similar. Both of them are mediators, right? So Esther is the person who comes between the Jews and this great king. She is the one who intervenes. She is the one who needs to save God's people. She is the one who's defending the poor and the vulnerable with this mighty king. 
And the scripture says that Jesus is a mediator too. That there is this conflict between God and humanity and he is the one who's in the middle. He's the perfect mediator because he's both God and man. He comes from both sides. So he's the perfect mediator and he comes between us to protect us and defend us, to save us. Unlike Ahasuerus, God's justice is fair and right. And Jesus, though, comes between us and absorbs all of that justice for us. And this took incredible courage because the only way he could do that was by dying. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, and Jesus took that death so that we wouldn't have to face God's judgment. Whenever I think about Christ's death, sometimes I go to the cross and Calvary, but probably more often I think of the garden at Gethsemane. We read the story in Matthew 26. It's the night Jesus was betrayed. Everything is dark. Everything is horrible. There's this spiritual darkness over the whole story. And Jesus is feeling it. He tells his friends, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So he knows what is ahead of him. And he's feeling the weight of it. And so he calls out to God, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in this moment, you really see the courage and faith of Jesus. He prays with boldness. He knows that if there is another way, then God can do that. He has confidence in that, that God could let the cup pass from him. But he's also humble. Not my will, but yours. And then he submits to God's plan. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If I perish, I perish. Friends, if you are a Christian, this is the moment that you are saved. This is the moment where Jesus resolved to die for you. This is the crossroads that he faced, the choice between faithfulness or fearfulness. And it's in this moment that he chose to die for you. Esther worried that she might perish. Jesus knew that he had to. And still he went. Still he did it for you. And now you can know that he is mediating for you today. Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus came to mediate for us and he still is mediating for us. He comes between us and judgment. He holds the space for us. This is the God that we can serve and know and trust. Look, there's lots of times where we'll face big decisions. There'll be some times where we'll do the right thing. There'll be lots of times where we don't. The extraordinary thing is that because of what Jesus has done, even those mistakes are forgiven. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has decided to die for you and he lives to continue to intercede for you. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for this remarkable story. We thank you for the drama and the tension of it and also the courage that we see in Esther. We thank you that you work your divine purposes through us and then for us. Help us to have the courage to choose faith over fear and to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, that that's what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.